Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winners Society of Cal Athletics and its alumni network. Each week, we interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life of those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society, who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are. Thank you, thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. Hello there, everybody. This is Joe Roof, uh, formerly of Cal Football and now president of the Big C Society. Uh, together with us today are Robert Paler, the incoming executive director of the Big C Society, uh, Jake Wilson, the liaison director for men's soccer at Cal, and who's also on the Big C Society board of directors, and our special guest, Joey Zwillinger, formerly of Cal Men's Soccer and now co-founder of the ubiquitous and wildly popular Altbird Shoe Company and co-CEO, is that right? Yeah. Okay, man, you're brave. We're going to have to dive into the emotional complexity of the co-CEO <laughs> challenge later. All right. Uh, so for our listeners, here's a little quick background, Cal background on Joey. Uh, he played soccer for the Golden Bears around the turn of the millennia with uh, one year under Coach uh, Grimes. Is that right? Yeah. And then uh, you were in two varsity letters, I think, in 2000 and 2001, and graduated with BS in industrial engineering and operations research. That's right. All good so far? Okay, good. Yeah. So so tell me, you know, the story of phase one period of your life, which we'll define as like beginning with the day you graduated and, you know, that further encompasses your time at Goldman and then Deloitte and then as an associate at Industry Ventures and then finally getting your MBA at Wharton, and I just want to mention that you know this is a pretty well-worn pathway, even if it's a rarefied one among you know people who prioritize accounting and finance as kind of foundational business skills. So I'm just interested if you could tell us the whole story, like why you chose it, what surprised you, how much you knew about the path in advance, and like all the roles therein. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, and um, <clears throat> I, I put myself back about 20 years and and think about. Uh, how nebulous and abstract the the world after college looked like at the time, um, and and uh, I tr- I'll try to position myself there and, and speak to my younger younger self. But I could see something like this being really helpful. So it's great that you guys are pulling it together. Um, but I guess I'll go go back. You know, when I was um, I, I started as a student athlete in 1999 at Cal. And, and uh, I, I knew I wanted to do something in uh, math, science, that kind of area. And so I, I picked engineering because uh, I thought it was challenging and interesting. I, I didn't frankly know all that much about what it would be. started as a mechanical engineer, actually. And somebody one day told me that mechanical engineers are in basements smoking piles of cigarettes and, and um, 
getting very exhausted doing AutoCAD drawings. And I was like, wow, that sounds terrible. Um, I, I don't think that's what mechanical engineers actually do. <laughs> so um, so that's enough to scare wrong, you. Yeah. wrong advice. Yeah, but it was enough to scare me. So I looked at a few different majors and I, I ended up, you know, thinking my parents were psychologists and I was really interested in the idea that people run business. Um, and, and so I, I thought industrial engineering was this blend of organizational design, organizational development, what people do and what structures do you put in place to motivate and train people to make more effective business outcomes? That seemed sort of interesting. So I dove in and started doing that. And and that led me to actually be interested in the idea of human resources as a career. Uh, And and so uh, I was in a cafe uh, down on College Avenue and some guy rolls over to my table and knows the girl that I was studying with um, at the table. And, and, and he was asking me what I wanted to do. And I said, I wanted to do HR. And he's like, well, my company has HR. They do internships. You wanna, do you wanna like give it a shot? I was like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds cool. What's the company called? And he said, Goldman Sachs. And I was like, okay, those are, that's like two Jewish guys. I'm Jewish. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up doing an internship at Goldman Sachs in New York City. Uh, and that was my first professional experience. And, you know, I, I kind of tell you that that path to make sure that everyone feels uh, who's listening to this understands uh, that if you have no clue what business is and you have no clue what Goldman Sachs is, that's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. And and serendipity can play a big role in, in your life and, and having confidence in yourself and and just rolling with the punches sometimes is also also a good strategy. But I, I, I entered Goldman Sachs and I had a really wonderful and a very significant growth experience there, learning about business, learning about um, HR, uh, demystifying what HR is, realizing that HR isn't really the front line of what is managing a business. And through that internship, I realized I wanted to be on the front line. Uh, got some great coaching from people that were very supportive of me at Goldman Sachs. Um, incredible company and I had a truly uh, tremendous time there and that led me actually to um, you know what do you do what do you do after college and I still had basically no clue what business was and yeah I I I would remember back that if somebody told me they were a business person uh, that just seemed like specific enough to me to be a good answer. And now if you told me you're a business person, I'd be like, come on, what, like, what do you do? What industry, what, what's your function? Are you, what's your position? What do you, what, like, how are you finance? Like I, I'd go, you know, 75 questions deeper. Um, but back in college, I didn't know. So I joined Deloitte Consulting um, to like really learn a broad basis of what does business do? What are some different industries? Um, and, and and just d- dive um, dive in and be curious. And so that was a that was that so, was a pretty cool idea. Yeah. By management consulting, you mean so you were flying out Sunday night or Monday morning. You're on site with the client, you know, until Thursday. Then you fly home and you're like trying to solve some problem that the the, the company wants your help with. Uh, as either as sort of an individual or as a part of a team. Is that the management kind of consulting yeah, that you're talking about? Yep. That's, that's exactly right. And, and, and just understanding what, what I learned there are a few different things. Like there's a, there's a lot of uh, crappy stuff that you have to do on a daily basis when you're a consultant, you're sifting through a ton of data and um, it gets, can, can be mind numbing at times. 
um, the most important important lesson I learned there was you're always going to learn something, no matter what it is, and and making sure that you find out exactly what um, what there is to learn and being intellectually curious is I think it's the most important thing in life, frankly, and 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 it's for sure true in work is just like being optimistic and knowing that that the bad stuff um, there's always silver linings even if it's bad and and being curious enough to, and doing a good job on it so that you keep opportunity open for your next project and whatnot. That was one thing I learned. The second is, is to come into situations. Um, and this is true no matter what, but in particularly in consulting, you're like a 23 year old, you might be smart. Um, but you, you are coming into an industry and meeting with executives at companies who have, who have forgotten more than you'll ever know about their industry and having a humility when you come in and you, and you drop into uh, a client site and knowing, having that framework in your mind while, while addressing problems and trying to add value and help is something uh, that even when you do know a lot about the industry, I think continues to be really important. And so <laughs> yeah. I, I just learned a ton about a ton of different industries, uh, management styles, uh, some some very polished and sophisticated, some kind of gunslinger, shoot from the hip style management teams, and and that was awesome. And I, I it demystifies things because then you're like, okay, business can kind of be whatever you want it to be. And if you run the show, like you get to make a lot of decisions and and you create something, and and that really sparked some of my fire for entrepreneurship, and that led me down the the path that has now been the rest of my career so far. Nice, yeah. Uh, Charlie Munger says something similar. That guy had seen Warren Buffett on that subject. He's like, he's like, we think we always assume that we're probably making a mistake and that we don't have all the information as opposed to the opposite. Some people yeah. think they know everything and like, have they have all the information? He's like, that makes us, he goes, we, we consider that one of our uh, competitive advantages, just that mindset alone. Yep. So then you go uh, to Warden, you get your MBA, uh, and, and, uh, and actually just before that, you're an associate at, at uh, venture capital company. And so my understanding of this job is you, you do a lot of research on companies that uh, that the general partners are considering making an investment. Is that right? Yeah. Looking for looking for new opportunities and sourcing them and then doing some research to understand whether it's a smart investment or not. And then negotiating with the management teams of those companies to see if you can get some money in. Are you um, were you covering renewables there for that was when I started to really tip into that space. And, and so, you know, somebody uh, around that time gave some great career advice. I think it was just a, a panel talk or something, but it really resonated with me, which was, you know, the, the best thing you could have done in, in the, you know, 1980s, if you were graduating college, was to get into the, you know, information technology computer computer ecosystem. If you were doing anything in that space, you were growing transferable skills in an industry that was going to be a 50-year tidal wave of, of, of something. And you were solving big, big problems along the way. So even if you had a failed step in one direction, um, you, you were setting yourself up for success for that next step. Um, and I, I took that advice and then I blended that with, with something that my dad had told me, which was which was, you know, he didn't really care what I did in life in terms of choosing what job I did, uh, but he, he he did care that it contributed to society and that it was bigger than just putting food on the table for myself and my family. And it contributed in a positive and meaningful way to society and being a productive member of, of, of our species. And and so for me, it was the environment. And I, that, like I knew, this is, call it like 2005, uh, 2006, I, climate change was 
the problem of our generation, if we didn't deal with it in our generation, our grandkids, our kids and grandkids were going to be really, really terribly off. Um, turns out it happened all a lot faster than I expected. Uh, and we're in a much worse space place than I, than I uh, ever considered we would be by 2020. Uh, but that was so, so uh, you know, having that significant of a multi-generational challenge and then having an opportunity to do something dynamic from entrepreneurship, small business with high growth and high aspirations and disruptive, uh, a disruptive approach to industries. That's a that's an interesting intersection. And for me, that was where I got really hungry to connect um, entrepreneurship with solving climate change and, and making a positive impact on the environment. So I started looking at a whole host of companies across software and IT, but also starting to focus on what at the time was called clean tech, and that was solar, wind, um, biochemicals, and biofuels. Those were kind of the more advanced um, segments within the industry at the time, some battery battery things as well. Um, so that was what I was focused on. I started really getting interested in those. And when I went to business school, as you mentioned, um, I decided that that same guy actually gave me, gave me the advice uh, on business school. And he said, look, the people that you're going to interact with, you might just have a few beers with them at business school. They're going to become your best friends and they're going to do unbelievable things in life. And you'll never be able to quantify that impact. And you'll never be able to do a, a cost benefit analysis on your salary today. But I can tell you it will be meaningful, life changing, and you'll never regret it. Um, and, and that was probably the most um, high impact advice I got to make that move in my career. Uh, it, it, it turned out to be true much quicker than I expected as well. And, and um, he, was, he was absolutely correct. And I used that, that juncture in my career to, uh, to just stop and stop working, which was awesome after five years of working. And, and, and just invest in myself and, and have conviction to go and take this narrow filter and say, if it was, if it hits this filter, if, if it says, if it's within dynamic entrepreneurship and environmental impact, positive environmental impact, I'm into it. If it's not all, all the, all three of those things, I'm not interested. I'm not going to go to that event or whatever and just focus on that. So that's what I did. Wow. That is, a, that's a great answer. And it sort of is a, a antecedent to the next answer. So I'm going to, I'm going to, probe and push her a little bit. So uh, uh, Don Valentine, you know, the legendary investor at Sequoia Ventures, you know, when asked what he thought about MBAs, he sort of famously and curtly responded, I'm against them. So <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, since you're a degree holder from Wharton and an epically successful entrepreneur, you know, first of all, you know, is there any logic you can point to, you know, that either validates or refutes, you know, Don's point of view? And, and like, how would you counsel aspiring golden bears on the subject of whether they should or shouldn't invest in MBA. I know you just partly answered that, but like, you know, particularly if entrepreneurship sounds good to them, like, you know, the, the pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. And I think generalizations are always dangerous. I, of course. I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll suppose that, um, that his, his answer on MBAs, um, when you think about the, the birth of Sequoia Capital and then what they focused on, very tech, technology, hardcore technology focused businesses that had massive scale opportunity because of technical disruption. If, if you're going to go to a business like that, your MBA degree is worth very little. 
Uh, if you're going to start a business like that, you need a deeply technical person to be the entrepreneur leading that exercise. And the people who are financing those those ventures are the people like Sequoia. And, and they've, they've migrated and changed over time as they've added new partners. And they probably would not be so hardcore about that statement anymore. Um, but but yeah. if I, I, I'm just I'm just guessing. I have no idea. I'm yeah. speculating. But but that I do think that's true. And, and if you look at my business, my business is it has a very um, material science oriented approach, but the industry is footwear and apparel. And it's a, it, it is not a technical uh, thing. It's something where a, a really sound business mind and an operator's mindset can drive yeah. a business to a great place. And, and you can enable your company with great technology, great material science, um, and other things that are quite, quite a bit more technical, but you, it's not the absolute core of the business that makes or breaks, um, the end result. Like for example, when you invent a new semiconductor, um, which is, yeah, so those are the two differences. So, you know, look, I, I do think, I guess my point is, understand your strengths and weaknesses if you're a heavy a heavily technical person and you want to go deep on deep in that a master's degree in computer science is going to serve you a lot better than an mba will if you um don't think that that is the path for you but you think you want to gain an empathy for working with folks like that and build great businesses in partnership with those an mba can be a great asset yeah you know to pick up on a previous comment you made too you know it's hard to do anything in life by yourself you know, and the idea of having friends, you know, that knows different, you know, bits of things about life that you can draw on, that you can lean on, that were your classmates at business school, you have a relationship that's kind of deep. That's really valuable, I found. Uh, I mean, I didn't go to business school, but I, I, you know, that sort of network, uh, you know, lots of people, you know, talk about building businesses that, that rely on a network and it's an effective way of getting one across disciplines. Yeah, I mean, I, you're a successful entrepreneur. I don't know if this resonates with you, but I, I when when I'm faced with a hard decision, my that I that I don't have a lot of conviction on when I'm yeah. faced with that decision, my my modus operandi is to go out to five people, plus or minus, that I think are the smartest to answer that question, and I and I ask all five of them the same exact question. Mm-hmm. I see what their answers are. And I pick apart with logic what I think resonates with me to be the most successful approach to solving that problem. And in entrepreneurship, the biggest challenge is making, being very decisive in the face of great ambiguity. And, and you're never going to have a sufficient amount of data. And, and to get a sufficient amount of data uh, or all of the data that you think you might want to have, you're never going to have the time to get that data. So you have to make decisions within a vacuum that has a lot of uncertainty. And so using a, a a board, so to speak, um, not 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 a board of directors, but like your personal board of advisors that you will go to is something that I've found incredibly powerful. And I would say the same thing is true of making career decisions for yourself. Yeah, completely true. It reminds me of uh, if you read Annie Duke's book, uh, Thinking and Bets. She makes the point that that, that uh, poker players uh, always make decisions with uncertainty, not knowing yeah. all the information. And it's, uh, so anyway, she made, it's great. She's like knowing like the difference between decisions where you, you know, and what you know about them and then luck and, and just understanding how to make the best decision given what you do know, like is that, I, that really resonated with me when I was thinking about uh, entrepreneurship. So it's a great book. You should read it. Uh, okay. So right out of B school, it looks like you go to work as a vice president for a public company. 
so that's a first of all like an awesome outcome like coming straight out of b school like into a you know role with you know a lot of uh let's just say uh influence you're it's a position of influence is that right? Did you, did you go right to Solzheim and the industrial running the industrial products division? I, went, I did. I did go right to Solzheim, but there was a number of steps I took in that company before I became a vice president there, doing mm-hmm. what I ended up doing. Um, and so, you, you know, what I did. Uh, yeah, I'll just tell you exactly what I did, just because it might be an inspiration or a lens to someone having an idea on how, how to do it for themselves. But the uh, we had something called the dedicated interview period at at, at Wharton. Uh, at the business school where where all these employers would come to campus and they would interview you. And those were the very safe and secure and traditional um, career paths, things like consulting, banking, um, you know, things, things like that, um, investment management, where you're managing people's money. Um, and, and I left campus during that period of time and went to the Bay Area and back to the Bay Area and, and started basically doing an informational interview with I think it was about 30 companies over two weeks. And they were all within that filter that I mentioned that were, were doing, using entrepreneurship to dynamically impact uh, the environment in a positive way. So all those sectors I mentioned that clean tech would cover at the time, I was talking to them and, and they were all the more advanced ones that I felt like my commercial mindset, my business mind could play a role in rather than something that was like still a science project where I didn't think I could add that much value. And that goes again to like, the, what is the place of an MBA? Mm-hmm. And so I took a chief of staff job, actually it was my first job at Solzheim where I was, I was working um, hand in glove with the CEO of the company. He was the founder as well in, mm-hmm. in helping to uh, drive organizational discipline to the company and, and, and operating frameworks. And it was this first job where that, that my analytical mindset and the output of my analytics, like the recommendations, the strategy, the whatever, like here's the answer to a problem, didn't matter. It was this emotional quotient that mattered and yeah. dealing with people and creating organizational systems. I was like, like sometimes I would find myself at my desk, like not doing anything. I was like, this is so weird. Like I, I, I've never been in this situation where like I don't have a problem to solve that like I can do with data. And like give an answer. It's like the hard stuff. And oh, yeah. it was such a great, great growth experience for me. Um, and I ended up vaulting through a whole bunch of different positions after that. Uh, a, a couple, I should say. And then ended up uh, running the, uh, what we formed as like a business unit uh, to, to, uh, to basically take our platform, which what we did, the company was called Solazyme. We engineered microalgae. Um, using biotechnology. So basically what that meant was we looked at the genetic pathways and the genetic code of this organism, which was a a species of microalgae. It was a single cellular organism, single cell organism. And we would use biotech to manipulate the code of that DNA of that that organism. Then we would feed it something. We fed it things like sugarcane from Brazil. It would eat that sugarcane and given whatever the environment we put it in, it would then convert and metabolize the sugar and spit out a product that was a replacement for petroleum. And my segment, if you look at petroleum, it's a barrel of oil. Most of it goes to fuel, some of it goes to chemicals, um, and then a variety of other things. I ran um, the group that was responsible for designing products that could replace petrochemicals. And so anything that's in your life, it's everywhere. The plastic you touch, the lubricants on machines, the so many different things, the soaps and surfactants that you use uh, on your skin in the shower, all of those come from petroleum, unfortunately. And we were looking at, and sometimes there's alternatives, that we were looking at replacing those with microalgae. 
And so I was responsible for designing these, working with large multinationals to understand what markets we could affect and then designing a product into that market and then translating that into successful business for us where we could manufacture at large scale and sell to these companies. Unilever was our biggest company, our biggest customer, which is a great example where we were putting our microalgae into their their most ubiquitous in Europe uh, soap bar, which is called the Lux Soap Bar. We don't really use it here in the U.S. and replace um, <laughs> palm oil in that case. And so all doing that with um, with zero carbon impact to the environment. And and it was such a, f- it was an unbelievable experience for me. And we, we ended up, you know, we rate the company overall raised probably something like a billion and a half dollars to, to solve this problem. We had large manufacturing, very global business. I was flying all over the world to, to get this work done. And, um, and and had this consistent experience where I would go to these businesses and we would say, um, we would say, you know, here's this product that we can make and here's your, what you're doing today. We can make what you're doing today, your product better. And we can also make it totally sustainable. And they were like, wow, that's mind blowing. Let's do this. And then by the end of the pro- by the end of the discussion, we'd get into like, you know, the, 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 uh, the tactical stuff around, all right, how much is it going to cost? When are you going to spend it? How much can you make? Blah, 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 blah. And they realized that actually what was going to work for them was just doing exactly what they did today and do it cheaper. And the rest of it was kind of greenwashing and lip service to the environment. And, mm-hmm. and it was a very frustrating experience. Um, and, and uh, you know, what, what I, I sort of took from that, there's one particular experience. Maybe I'll just share the story. I, I work with um, actually University of California, San Diego, uh, and a, a lab there to develop a surfboard made out of microalgae. And we, we it was really cool. It was, it was like carbon neutral. So per, it was great for the environment. We had a pro surfboard, surfer called, uh, I think his name was Rob Machado, um, ride the surfboard in competition. Super cool. I'm sitting there like surfers. The like these are the people that are going to be the most caring for the environment. Understand that if you don't have to trade off performance, but you get to you get to not extract from the planet. It's a win win. This is great. Let's do this. And no one would buy the surfboard blanks because it was like ten percent more. It was like nothing in the grand scheme of things. If you don't know how to market to a surfer and use that as a as a way to to really sell a product and make a very significant business out of it, I think you're an idiot. That was basically the revelation I had. So what I realized was all these cool ingredients are here. Consumers want it. And what they want is something that doesn't detract from performance and doesn't extract from the environment. It's the brands in the middle that are in the way. So like, let's do, let's, I should go do something like that. Like, let's uh, forget about the old guys. Um, let's go. And, and, and it, it, around this time, my knight in shining armor was a professional soccer player. Um, and he, he was, uh, this is Tim Brown, who's, who's my co-founder at Allbirds. He was, he played, he went to University of Cincinnati on soccer scholarship, was a student athlete, went on and played about a decade, a little over a decade of professional soccer. He was the captain of the New Zealand national team in the 2010 World Cup. So pretty cool prominence he, he rose to in, in, in athletics. Um, and he came around with the shoe idea uh, made out of wool because he'd been staring at 30 million sheep in New Zealand for a while and figured <laughs> they had to be useful for something. And and we, what we decided was that like, I started looking at this industry and like the shoe industry makes 20 billion pairs of shoes a year and pays – I had experience going to try to sell these shoe companies replacements for basically what is – you know, shoes are just – either hide from an, a cow or, or a bucket of plastic on your feet. That's all they are. Mm-hmm. And they make it look cool, but it's just plastic. And it's plastic from petroleum, and that's stupid. And so we said, this is a, an amazing opportunity to lead. 
we, we decided we would connect my background on material science that I developed professionally, not, not, not from an academic background, um, but I developed that professionally, particularly at Solzheim, and, and connect that idea to make amazing R&D from nature, turn that into something that's differentiated from a product that people love, connect that to a business strategy where we could sell directly to consumers, and we would then potentially have an opportunity to like systematically disrupt this industry and do something quite different from how they looked at the problem of making shoes. And that was the, that was the origin of, of, of Tim and I deciding we'd, we'd link up and sync our sync our lives together and, and sync our careers for the next uh, really important bit of our careers in our mid thirties uh, into this into this challenge. So my understanding is uh, your wives were friends. Is that right? Is that how you guys initially met? Yeah, they were roommates in at Dartmouth actually. Oh, got it. And so how far how far back does this relationship go? Like roughly like from a date perspective, when did you guys? So my my wife and and his now wife were friends since when I was in college, so tw- over twenty years. Um, I met him for the first time in 2010, um, just as an acquaintance because they'd started dating and I, I was friends with her. Um, <laughs> and then we kept a, a light relationship, like meeting at you know mutual friends' weddings and things like that. Never th- thought about business seriously. He actually started a Kickstarter in 2014, um, which I was one of the first customers of. And and the, the product was awesome. Um, he sent me a women's tent instead of a men's tent, which I'm still chapped about and, and ended up telling me to like, you know, take out the insult to make it fit better so his customer service really sucked back then um, we've, we've made it we've made it an essential piece of being a better company now to have good customer service as a retailer um, at Allbirds but we um, so anyway he he, he, um, he he was he was really struggling with the business side of bringing this into into um, a at scale commercial organization he started this Kickstarter and he had probably what he would describe as the most challenging year of his life um, and he'd had some like adversity and, and a lot of challenge, particularly through athletics. And, and so, um, raised 120,000, is that right? Some around that, like in the Kickstarter 120,000 bucks in, 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 in one day or maybe three days. And back in the day, that was like six, six years ago, I say back in the day, that was a lot of money. Like Kickstarter now that you get to millions, um, but it wasn't happening in this category then. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that was, it was a big deal. It was a really interesting data point. He read market signal on that, you know, like totally, totally. You know. And so for me, like that, that was, I was reading that. I saw the problem that we could connect. I saw a leadership opportunity. I saw a, a, a way to make a business model that, if we were more su- successful financially, we would be more successful from an environmental impact perspective. So those stakeholders are like fully aligned. That was pretty cool. I didn't really, you know, I was doing, a, I was thinking about leaving Solazine for about a year and looking at a whole bunch of opportunities that were kind of in that zone or maybe even uh-huh. in the chemicals, like renewable chemical sector again. And I did so much work doing diligence and figuring out what I wanted to do next. I knew it was going to be entrepreneurial. I knew it was going to be early. I didn't know what it would look like. and and. I did the least work on this one because the signal was good. I could trust because I had a proxy in Tim's wife, his girlfriend at the time, um, that that um, that I could trust him as a partner. And and um, you know, everyone everyone uh, wears shoes. So, so does this mean this that, like you never had to have the difficult conversation with your wife about dropping your lucrative career as a you know biotech exec and you're going to start a shoe company because like they already knew each other and like they. She trusted you or was that like, bring us back to that moment. No, we, we definitely had that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) What was it like? Was she worried? Like how how did you guys, I I mean, think like there's not that many, um, career paths that you would point to, to go from biotechnology to shoemaking. 
So, um, so yeah, no, it, it sounded a little crazy. Um, and, and my wife was the catalyst of it, the biggest supporter of it, and um, never would have done it without her. And she continues to play an incredibly understated and outsized role in the development of what Allbirds is. As our family uh, and, members do. Totally. Yeah. It's all, I mean, it's, it's, it's one pretty, team, one it, mission. It's like, you can't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and what, what you, you'll, if anyone gets into entrepreneurship that, that's listening, or, and certainly you understand it, it's, it goes six inches into your brain. It's not like, you know, even if you're not working 100 hours, you're thinking about it for 150 hours a week. Like, nope. <laughs> never uh, stops. And, so that's a perfect, yeah, that's a perfect segue. Okay, so I, wanna, I want you to kind of, you know, for anybody who's considering entrepreneurship, uh, let's, let's talk about the first two years at Allbirds, like in the role of CEO, founder, co-founder. And, um, and then if you can, you know, contrast that with the, the previous role you were talking about, which is sort of vice president at a, was it Solazon public or private? Yeah. It was public, yeah, right? We, we, I joined it when it was private and we went public. Yeah. Yeah. So like a, you know, it, it's a, it's a different role entirely. Just if you can, you know, let's, we'll start with the Allbirds part because we're there and then you can com- contrast that to what it's like to be a, you know, an executive at a bigger firm. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, so, and maybe, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe even contrast it back to some of the experience that I had with very large companies when I was a consultant. That's probably the last time I've, I've been like really in, in, in the four walls, deeply entrenched in a, in a big, big company. Um, yeah. So starting a company, I mean, look, there, there was, um, my dog Walt is still sitting here next to me. Um, there was me and Tim and you know, we were in my mother-in-law's apartment and making shit happen. <laughs> that was, that, that is, that, that is what you got to do when you start a company. It's, 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 um, so having the un- understanding that like an individual with tenacity and creativity can completely change a huge industry and believing in yourself that you can do that. But it really starts with, you know, a couple people in a room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was telling Rob the other day, you know, at least this is my experience, but it sort of feels like thousands of mundane tasks performed at high speed. It's like not the, you know, the flashy, splashy headline from TechCrunch about like raising millions of dollars. It's like we got to put like, you know, little file tabs on the file folders and we got to go call these <laughs> customers and we got to go figure out like who our vendor is and like, why isn't that guy paying us? And why is this cost? Like all these things, like really fast, you know, like 10,000 decisions in your first year. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, you know, there, there's, um, the way that, that I've always approached these things and then was very much true at Allbirds was, uh, be very intentional and, and have a, a lot of clarity and conviction around what you are going to do and believe in it until data suggests that you were wrong continue to believe in it and doggedly fight after that outcome. Um, and so what we did actually, you know, before we started the business, when I was still at Solazon, <clears throat> we wrote a business plan together and we did it not, you know, the main reason we did it was to get alignment on what were the big decisions that we would make to make us ultimately successful. And, and what that did was it was really nice because you're, you're in this environment where a lot of people, smart people are giving you advice and telling you what to do. And, um, you know, like investors, like, like, ev- like mentors, everybody. like everybody, like just swirling Every, everybody around you. They, 
every when you're starting a business, everybody thinks they know more than you, and that they they think they have solid advice to tell you. Um, and some people do, and some people don't, and you just gotta ferret that out. But that's why getting in, intentionality and conviction in what you're gonna do served us really well because we said ninety nine, we said no ninety nine times for every one thing we said yes to. Yeah, and that allowed us to not do ten thousand things. We actually, you know, we did try to do like five things and just do them super well. We, we ended up taking that approach. We raised some money. So um, that was one aspect of the job that I've had to do um, the number of times. I think we've done it six times now um, on the equity side. So we've raised money from venture capitalists and other investors. We've raised, uh, I don't know, something like $200 million now. So it's, it's quite a bit now. But back back then in 2015, we raised, um, we raised $2 million to get off the ground and then allocated that money and just focused it on the three things that we knew we needed to do to win and to give us the best shot at success. Mm-hmm. And and that's all we spent our money on, nothing else. We spent nothing on anything else, basically, or the yeah. minimal we could get away with. And and um, that's you. how we then hired. That's how we hired people. That's how we focused our hiring efforts. That's how we focused our daily lives and our activities. That's how we focused what we, you know, how we raised money and what we spent it on. Um, and, and it gave us a, a really great experiment where we we did a huge amount of work to launch the company and we did it with one shoe and in 2016 on march 1st we launched in new zealand and in america uh time magazine said it was the most comfortable shoe in the world and we were off to the races we did a million dollars in in shoe sales in the first month that we were in business and in, in that that first month of march and uh and we were off to the races and then we've uh you know the tasks have have evolved significantly since those early days um and and um we've learned a lot in that time and you know some of those things you were to, you to guys were direct to, you were direct to consumer right no no wholesale yeah we continue to be and is that is that because you know there's slightly better margin and that helps pick up the the maybe the extra costs of that you were referring to before the extra 10 percent that somebody would have to pay to make a like a truly green renewable product that's that's part of it you know it's it's there's a it's um it's a very um a lot of factors that go into this but technology has allowed us to reach consumers more Mm -hmm. effectively today so we can reach people through social media um there's there's platforms that enable you to to transact commerce um with without a lot of investment in technology itself just buying things off the shelf we we have a, a platform we use called Shopify that's really enabled us to have mm-hmm. very easy commerce. And so we, we would, um, where we weren't reinventing, where we weren't inventing something, we would just buy it off the shelf. That was yeah. kind of always our mantra. When we would invent something, we would go deep. And we, we invented a really cool new fabric um, that had never been used in shoes before. We started a series of different inventions on material science side that we connected into shoes. And that's where we focus so much of our energy. And still to this day, I go deep into the into the, um, into the the science of what we're investing in from a materials perspective, because it's so hard to do and it takes so long that we need to really concentrate our bets on, on what materials we think are gonna translate to great products. And so I still spend a lot of my time doing that. That's now at a more strategic level and I have people interact with the customer with that with the companies that are that are leading the charge on that on the real R&D and innovation that are working with me alongside me to do that um, you know a lot of a lot of financial management is my my um, my job now versus um, back then it was really every single detail on the product we would sweat every we would be I would be in the factory uh, every other month and our factory was in Korea 
at the time and, and um, making every tiny little decision, um, making every decision about the words on the website, every, sweating every tiny little detail because it all mattered. Oh, yeah. And, and we and just, you know, working our tails off like so many hours, so much travel, so much anxiety and energy. And, and, and it was like when we launched the product and we were we were pretty successful in the first go of it. It was like this big weight off. And then also like such a weird feeling because I didn't realize how much stress was on me. And it's like it, it is the most you know, high anxiety you know, I, I could ever um, picture. I, I remember a particular time we, we had just taken $2 million and we found out that our factory wasn't going to work out. It was going to be in Eastern Europe and it was never going to work. And, and we, so we lost the factory and we had to find a new factory. We had eight months to launch the product, which is the timeline we Oof. gave ourselves. It usually takes 18 months to go uh, soup to nuts on product development for, for a new shoe. And so we, uh, we were, we were um, starting really far behind and, and um, <laughs> ended up creating this little horse race of about three factories we found. You know, one from a, a friend of mine who I played soccer with actually at Cal. He's a phenomenal soccer player named Chris Ronier, who's working with uh, shoe factories in Asia and, and connected me with one. And that was eventually the one that we ended up working with. And and still to this day, where they're now their exclusive customer, and we make a lot of pairs with them. Um, still in Korea and, and very loyal to these guys. Uh, and so so uh, just through like scrappiness and and persistence. Uh, you break through walls. And if you don't do that, you're never going to win an entrepreneurship. But that was the approach that we took early on. And that that consumed uh, a huge amount of, of what I was doing at that time. That is uh, so exactly what entrepreneurship is like in the first two years. It's, you know, regularly landing the plane without one wing just because like stuff comes up. Now, if can you can you bring that like bring us back to like a like a public company? What are the cadences in a public company? As, a, as an executive, if you were, if you're like entrepreneurship, I don't know, that sounds pretty crazy. Like I'd rather go, you know, get a paycheck and like work inside of a big firm and manage a product line or something or, or a business unit. Like, how is it, like, how did, how do you remember that being different? And uh, was it useful yeah, to you I mean, at all? Like as a, as an, as an entrepreneur, that's like a second part of the question. Yeah, it's, it can be incredibly useful. It's 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 better. It's always better to go uh, big to small than small to big. If you go from a small company, your skills are a lot less useful in a big company. I think um, if you take skills from a big company, they can be transferred very effectively into a small company. Mm -hmm. Not to say that that's easy. And I've 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 hired lots of executives who have failed um, in entrepreneurship because they think going from 10 to one is easy when actually what you're asking them to do is go from zero to one. And that's very, very difficult. It's a different skill set. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's still hard, but, but the skills are very, are very useful. I, I would say that um, um, just to compare and contrast, like my day as a leader of a small company still to this day and, and, and certainly true when we started was extraordinarily broad scope and narrow depth. And when you're at a large company, typically you're going to you're going to have a much narrower scope of responsibility and you're going much deeper. And, and the impact of what you do with that narrow scope can be quite big because the company has large scale. So, mm -hmm, for mm -hmm, example, mm -hmm. you're making a small marketing decision if you're in the marketing product marketing department of a consumer company. Um, but you might be selling, you know, 40 million widgets of whatever you make. Yeah, and so the yeah. impact of that little marketing decision is very, very significant. And the budgets are very large. So what you get good at is understanding how to make um, how to make 
big decisions that have very significant impact, but you're focused on a very narrow scope. And if you get a, a you know a broad swath of these, and being a product manager in technology is a really great example of, of one where you really get this commercial mindset of how to bring a product to life, how to talk to customers to make sure you're making solutions that meet the needs that they have, yeah. and that you're solving a problem that they're willing to pay for. Is there, that that's a beautiful um, position within technology to to launch a career because you learn that breath while still focused um, and you're gaining these skills that are very transferable to entrepreneurship and big company there's a whole bunch of different things you can pick up and and I think that's why consulting for me was was um, something I was interested in getting that like broad education and then when I was interested in entrepreneurship I could translate some of those uh, experiences that were kind of uh, I had to piece them together but learned a lot from each of those um, because of that intellectual curiosity that I, I really hold dear to, to helping steer my life and and then apply that into a specific problem and be able to, you know, maybe be decisive under uncertainty. Yeah, that makes total sense. We actually had a, a product manager uh, from technology software uh, on the on the show uh, recently. We were talking about that, like sitting in the, the intersection between like the business side of your business, users, engineering uh, and then like your design group and you have like in that job, you've got better knowledge, you know, about your product than like anybody else. And, and so that's yeah. why it's a good analogy for like being the CEO of a firm where you're sitting at the intersection of all the different functions in your particular business. And like you have better knowledge about your organization than anybody else. And you're seeing things like, OK, this happened over there. That's like going to make these changes over here and and so forth. So um that's and there's analogies in other industries that's not product management that has the same thing. But one thing that, that I think is so unique about that role is that um, you're using a lot of um, highly analytical skills to understand user behavior. And you're also using a lot of EQ skills to like deal with designers on one hand, which is, you know, yeah. they have a particular way of working and engineers who have a completely different way of working yeah. and, and getting collaboration amongst very um, diverse groups of, of thinkers to, um, to come together and make a product that works for those, for those customers. Like that, that using getting, getting something where you blend those two skills allows you to develop leadership attributes that are that are useful as well as analytical um, skills that are also quite useful because now like my job is much more around um, looking at, at at big picture outcomes from what the, the what the indicators of our business are suggesting how we're headed look at the red lights the yellow lights and the green lights when when we see things change and understand and then make big strategic decisions and bets on our with our capital on where we invest people, money, and energy to make those things change to go in the right direction, and then just deal with people. And that, those are basically that's my the entirety of my job now is dealing with people, hiring, firing, uh, organization, management, performance management, motivation, culture, and then those big strategic bets. That's it. And, and that, I think, is the role of an executive at a large company completely. And in entrepreneurship, you get there after you hit you know, a few hundred people in your company. I think that's um, generally where you end up with. Yeah. I, I was, in fact, I was just going to ask you, you know, how's your perception of the CEO role changed you know, as you've sort of established growth and scale? So you, you pretty much just answered that. I wonder also, did you, have you ever read Ben Horowitz's like, seminal piece yeah. on uh, cash flow and destiny? I don't remember that specific. I know I read his book, <laughs> Hard, Hard Things About Hard, Hard things. things or something. That's a great, yeah. great book because he yeah. pins it. But anyway, this, this idea is like, is, this is also for entrepreneurs. You know, if you're selling something, 
you know, the moment when you don't have to rely, you're, you're, Allbirds is now profitable, I'm guessing. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. So well, you don't have to rely on venture financing anymore. He's like, you know, you don't think that makes a difference in your decision? It absolutely makes a decision to the difference in like how you think about like your company and what you're going to do. So like, like, where was that for you? How, how fast did you guys get profitable? How many times did you go back into the cash trough? Well, it's it's been interesting, you know. I, I think the goalposts have moved on our on our business, and and, and I like to, I've I've had this kind of mindset. You know, you asked me how how my wife and I decided that that we would take this venture on. Um, we had a conversation where I I said we were going to find out. We would start this business, and we would find out whether it was successful or if it was a failure within two years. And I would I would not allow it to happen that we would be in the middle. We would either, we would find one of those two outcomes, the yeah. middle petrified man. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, and so the, we took that mindset to the business and we made big bets that would either work really well or would fail miserably, but quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really smart way to start a business because it, particularly I was like 34 or something like that. Um, and, and like that's an important part of your life when you're like building, developing skills that you can transfer to like, um, create great outcomes and, and great opportunities for yourself down the road. And, and, um, and so, you know, sinking a lot of time, that's a big deal. I mean, that, that my time is the only thing, it's the only thing you got on earth. So, um, and, and, um, so we said two years, we'll figure this out. And, and we raised money and we had that in mind. And what I figured at the time was we'd raise money once we would, we would, hopefully be very successful, raise money one more time, and then we'd be profitable forever. And that was the plan. And, um, you know, more or less it worked, actually. Um, and, and yet, once we got to that point, we, we became profitable um, right out of the gate. We were profitable in our first full year. And, and that was so by 2016, end of 2016, we were profitable. And, um, but then we said, Shit, we're onto something much bigger here. Um, let's take a, all that profit plus some and start investing that in the yeah. business. And we started making big, big bets on a whole number of variables, um, R and D categories of product we would go into, um, channels that we wanted to sell in. So we started adding brick and mortar to the to, to our operation instead of just digital, mm-hmm. which takes a lot of capital mm-hmm. and, and a lot mm-hmm. of other work. And then we said international. Let's go big international really early, much earlier than most businesses do. So we're in 35 countries today. We yeah. have teams in the ground in China, <clears throat> Japan, Korea, uh, uh, in Europe, and in the UK and Germany, uh, and, and in the United States and a couple places. And so we're super global. That took a lot of money. So we started reinvesting that. Yeah. And that forced us to, to make a decision. Should we go out and try for something massive and raise money to support that? Or should we be comfortable with where we're at, maybe sell the business to, to some other larger company? We said the impact we can make is huge. The, the satisfaction on our personal lives and the culture we're creating and the satisfaction that's going to create for our employees is so great. And the financial outcomes can be good for employees and for our investors. Let's take money. It's worth it. Yeah. And so we've gone on. They, we, they, they Usually in venture capital, they call like Series A, Series B, et cetera. So we're up to Series E now, <laughs> which I always thought was ridiculous, but now I'm living it. So there, here we are. So we're, we're Series E and we, we've raised 200 million bucks, um, something like that, and, and in, in that ballpark. And uh, and and we are um, and, and so we're running at a huge opportunity. And, and the thing that I, I get comforted by is, you know, 
Nike makes 500 million pairs of shoes a year. Adidas, kind of same ballpark. Um, and, and, and 20 billion pairs are made every year globally. Like 1% of that is so big. Yeah. That, Huge. that like you could make an absolutely enormous business with 1%. And we're not even close to that yet. Yeah. So like, like it, there's such a big opportunity here if we execute well. Yeah. And we, we have conviction around our values and we express those effectively through our marketing. And, and, we, and, we, and we make great products that deliver on the promise that we're, we're creating for customers. We're gonna be we're gonna be a really big important business, and that's what excites me. Okay, so th- uh, that makes total sense. I want now. I want to return to the subject of um, you know this is for our entrepreneur listeners. You know, choosing your co-founder. You know, among the most, if not the most, consequential decision that you'll make as an entrepreneur. You know, like you spend so much time with that person. You you make you know thousands of decisions, which honestly a lot of them are really like bets, like you're, you're pointing out and. You know, lot there's all these people that are swirling around giving you advice and so forth, and then on top of that, you guys decide you're going to be co CEOs. You know, which which again is the, just the emotional complexity, like in in making that work inside of an organization where lots of people need to know what to do. Like, how did you guys do it, and how did you stay together with Tim? You know, from the early days and kind of you know manage through this growth and scale and so forth. Yeah, well, the relationship is built on mutual admiration and respect. Um, and if you don't have that with your partner, then, yeah, it's probably not going to work out, uh, regardless of what you title yourselves. Yeah. Um, we, we went with co-CEOs for a number of reasons, but I, I guess before I say that, you know, the, the, the most important aspect of, of beyond the foundation of, of, of mutual admiration and, and respect and trust is that we have very complementary skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a... I have a, a deep knowledge of material science, manufacturing, entrepreneurial, like scaling. Uh, I shouldn't say deep expertise, but at least some expertise. I've yeah. had some experiences there. Um, Tim is on the design and, and intuitive creative marketing side. And that was not something I'd spent any of my career on. And so we knew we had these strengths respectively and that we could organize the business around those strengths. Yeah. So the functional responsibilities sit in those buckets. And he manages the creative and, and, the, and the brand marketing side of the business. And, and, and I do the rest of the business. And, and, uh, and that's where our strengths lie. Perfect. And, and where we can't do. So, so it made a lot of sense. And I think you know, the idea that um, a single person needs to make every decision at the end of the day, I think is, um, it, it seems like it's, it's sort of from like military or I don't know, sort of like um, different, different, different ways empires have been built and collapsed, but you know, empires do collapse, militaries fail, they lose wars. Um, and I, I would challenge the idea that a single leader with a single voice every time is always the right solution. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, cases where there's failures in, in dual CEO roles. And so I think people point to those a lot, but there's way more examples of single CEOs failing. I think people would argue that's that it's not point. because of the structure, but, but I think that that's, that's sometimes a failed argument. And I think um, as long as you come into an opportunity with the right amount of humility, admiration and respect for, for your partner, uh, whether you title it a co-CEO or not, I don't think matters, but I don't think you'll be successful if you keep a very lonely environment and you're the head honcho calling all the shots. Yeah. I, I know some leaders who do it that way. Um, and it looks miserable, lonely, and I think the outcomes are much worse. Yeah, it's interesting. We have uh, another one of our uh, former board members, another Golden Bear, uh, Dave Butler, basketball player, 
uh, is currently co-CEO of Dimensional Fund Advisors in Austin. So he's, mm. they're making it work too. So we've, I mean, we've certainly seen both, but I, I think it's provocative and interesting question. And, you know, managing whole companies of people is emotionally complex. You mentioned that previously, like, you know, you can read something about like how to, you know, let's just say extract data from here, or you add, you know, A plus B and you get an answer. But, you know, like doing that with actual people and the emotional complexities of actual people, like is a hard thing. And so, uh, <clears throat> but it sounds like you guys have, have the exact right mindset and uh, trust and admiration and the, the things you meant complementary skill sets couldn't be more important. I mean, that's like what, yeah. what you're doing in a non say software business is the equivalent of a hustler hacker combination in a software business mm. uh, where you have uh, the, sort of the technologist and the business person. But um, did you, did, did you, the fact that you guys played soccer, the two of you, you and Tim, did that have any bearing on your like mutual admiration or did, did you feel like you were grounded in a, um, in a shared experience or, Look, I think I think the um, the fact that we were both competitive athletes, uh, he obviously did did a lot uh, more than I did and a lot better. Um, but but um, the fact that we had that background, I think it created a, a couple of things. Like from my experience at Cal, take a few things as a, as an athlete. You know, first of all, it was the most diverse ethnically situation that I've ever been in, where um, where. Uh, people's backgrounds on that dimension had absolutely no bearing on, 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 um, what people thought of you. It was just whether you were good at what you were supposed to do on the field or not. Mm -hmm. And, and learning how a meritocracy like that, um, can, uh, can, can create an incredibly rich and rewarding and diverse environment was something that I always reflected on. And that was so interesting about athletics Mm -hmm. and, and was like the great equalizer. Um, and I, I think I, I think both of us have taken that um, into the, into our business. Um, the second thing is is around discipline, and, and the third is just about um, maybe maybe secondarily the discipline to always get better and and to never think that you've been successful enough because there's always somebody waiting to take your spot on the field or <laughs> always somebody out there on the other team that can be better than you. Uh, and and those those disciplines are what drive our business. We're extremely competitive. Yeah, and I mean I am. I am extremely, extremely competitive. Like I want to kill our competition. Nice. Uh, and 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 I think, um, and yeah, I mean, we do that in, in in the most loving way. I mean, we're not like we're not we're not uh, we're not out there doing bad things to get that outcome. You want to make the best possible cost cost kind of environment. No, but but it's 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 um, you know that mindset. You got to have that to be a successful athlete, and I think that's. Um, that drives us in our daily lives and our business. Too. So perfect. On that note, like we'd like to shift to sort of the, like the, you've talked, talked about some of them just now, but some of the intangible benefits of, uh, you know, investing, you know, thousands of hours on the pitch running and so forth. Like our audience is, you know, as, as student athletes, very interested whether those sensibilities, you know, are transferable to post sports careers. And so I'm going to turn the mic over to Jake and he's got a question on that. Hey, Joey. Yeah. I mean, you kind of answered a little bit of it, um, but you know, people always hear about the advantages embedded in the, the mindset of former athletes at work and, um, you know, what gives the athletes an, an edge in the workforce or whatever they're doing. Um, for example, the, the book mindset written by Stanford professor, Carol Dweck, that's a very, um, uh, popular one. You know, my question was kind of, is that truth or hype first? You kind of answered it, but if truth, what, and, you know, do you feel like you have any soccer related superpowers or, you know, those days on the pitch that give you an edge at Allbirds? I know you kind of 
touched on it, but is there any specific tangible examples that, you know, from your days at Cal beforehand or, or whatnot? Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I think, I, uh, first of all, I can't believe you quoted a Stanford professor on here, but huh. we'll, we'll give you a pass. Nobody's perfect. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but I, th- I think, I mean, look, team sports are amazing, right? Like people have good days and bad days. And, and you have an empathy for someone having a bad day. Uh, and, and you know that, that down the road, cause you've seen them perform, uh, that they're going to have a good day. Um, maybe today is just not that day. And, 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 um, and what do you do in that situation? And how do you, how do you, um, how do you deal with the person psychologically and how do you deal with it? Like tactically, like when they're actually not delivering what you need them to deliver. Um, that is, that is the soft skill of, of managing an organization. And I think um, the teamwork, the camaraderie, the, the, the shared objective and, you know, one team, one dream sort of mentality is, is what running a business is. And if you don't have that, you probably have a toxic culture. And so the lessons that you learn in, in, uh, in empathy and competition are highly transferable. They're very soft. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, a lot of people, if, if you say that in a job interview, you're probably not going to go very far. But but I do think that um, but I think they're real. They're really real. And as you rise up in an organization, I think they become ever more present. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and those become increasingly important. And so I, 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 I think it's I think very highly of that. I think this similar is true from uh, military experiences. When people I've worked with with those backgrounds, I don't personally have that, but um, I think similar similar um, lessons learned in leadership and and teamwork are something that are are really important in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, my my co-founder is a Marine, or I should say, he, he is. We're no longer working together on the business, but Marines, you know, they always like to say, "Once a Marine, always a Marine." But uh, that was really helpful, like for my understanding personally, you know. And he brought a lot of that uh, influence into our company, so. I know what you mean. And Joey, when you uh, when you spoke about the ethnic diversity um, back when you played, it is, I mean, as you may have known when you spoke to the team, there's 30 teams at Cal, and we are the most ethnically diverse team uh, at Cal. So it just happens that way, and maybe soccer's the world sport and and whatnot. But that definitely plays a huge part in um, in our guys and what they what they take from from the Cal experience. You know, Joey, I've got one final question for you right here. And the fact is 98% of Cal student athletes go pro in something that's not their sport right when they graduate Cal. And then you got like 2% of people that do go pro in their sport. And then they go pro in a non-sport career like right after that. So my question is, if you yourself right now, 40 something years old, could have a conversation with your 22 year old self going through that transition, What's your advice and what are you going to say? I got, I got an addendum too. I want to mention this is really important, uh, Joey, because like we've heard very poignantly from this group that this transition uh, that Rob was just alluding to is really difficult. It can be really difficult. They describe athletes have described the feeling of being untethered, uh, you know, like deeply uncertain about who they'll become, like how life will unfold. Like, do they have any skills other than their athletic skills and so forth? So, uh, yeah, what would you, how does that, that hit you? Yeah. So first of all, Rob, I'm 39. I took offense to that, uh, description <laughs> of your question. Sorry about That's that. Okay. Um, so, you know, 
it's really important what you just said. You know, the, the 2% of people who um, go pro still go pro in something else after. And I can tell you, I, I work with a lot of professional athletes now and I, I love doing it. Um, we have investors that are professional athletes in the NBA and, um, and professional soccer leagues and the English Premier League and a whole number, a bunch of others. And, and those people are also scared about what's going to happen when they retire. Not because they don't have enough money in some of the cases of the people who made a ton of money, but because of their personal fulfillment. Like, what are they going to do with their lives? And that's equally as important. It's not just a financial thing. It's about what, what are you going to do in life? And so I, I guess the, the overarching, the overarching um, thought that I have having lived it myself but then more so because of, I wasn't like uh, the longest athletic career in the world, um, seeing other people do it is, is not being so one dimensional about your sport. Like when you can truly think about what are the things that you want to build as skills? What are the hobbies that you're interested in? What are the things that the passions that motivate you that you think you could sink a large portion of your life into? And, and if you make that choice 10 years down the road, would you still be as excited as you are today? And you might, you might get that wrong, but, but force yourself to make those decisions. Think about that and then get into it and start working on those things on the side. Like if it's investing, like find a way to like work on some investing when you're doing your, when you're doing either your collegiate or you're professional, even if you don't have a lot of money, like there's a, tons of different things that you can get into these activities. And I would, I would highly encourage people to, um, to start to diversify the way they look at the world very, very early and do that, um, do that in college. Hopefully you've already started to do it before that, but do it in college, do it when you're a professional athlete, do it all along the way, because, you know, it's just like you hear the same thing about people who retire from long, you know, decades of a career as a doctor, they retire. And then like, they're so crazy crazy they get divorced because their what their partners are now like can't even handle them because they have no hobbies they don't know what to do they're lost you got to develop these things early they take time to figure out and and they're really hard and i think um a rich life is one that's filled with um a number of different activities hobbies interests uh and i think you'll be personally rewarded if there's some values that bring them together but they're not just one dimensional and i, I would just encourage people to really think about this early and often yeah, you mentioned, you said the key to life was uh, creative curiosity, something like that in the beginning. And, you know, this sort of duality that you're mentioning, like, hey, being interested in my sport and also being interested in other things that you may want to do at the same time. You know, everybody can walk and chew gum. Why shouldn't that be the same for athletes? Yeah, and like, you should walk and chew gum. You should walk and chew gum. And like, you know, as an athlete, you, you're equipped to do that better than almost anybody. Um, yeah. I get that there's a lot of time commitment when you're in college playing a sport. I mean, I remember calculating it was like 28 hours a week and and uh, and you're exhausted afterwards. And so it's hard to do other stuff, but just do it. I mean, you just got to do it because it's it's otherwise you're you're going to you're going to um, you're going to have a traumatic situation at the transference. And if you don't, you're going to seamlessly move to something and have conviction and confidence in yourself that you're going to be successful in the next chapter. Wow, great advice. Awesome. And then how can our listeners follow you? How can they reach you? Um, I'm not the most public person in the world, but um, we're, we're, like, check out Allbirds. Go to allbirds.com. I do a bunch of writing. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, connect with me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, anyone who's interested in the area of entrepreneurship and, and making an impact on the environment in particular, and there's always going to be a soft spot for for Cal athletes in my heart. Um, so, so, uh, so get out there and, and lo love to be in touch. Nice. 
Joey, that was uh, that was an insight bomb. Thank you so much for your time today. That was really, really, really good. Really useful. Awesome. Thank Thanks you so much. Go Bears. Go Bears, guys. So Joey's Willinger, easy to find. He's all over the internet and allbirds.com, LinkedIn, and so forth. What a remarkable, compelling human he is, right? He's got so much wisdom to share. And it's so rare to talk to an entrepreneur who was on board for the entire ride of scaling his or her business. He seems as attached today as he probably was on day one. Still passionate about driving growth and what a model he is for aligning your professional life with a set of ideals. In his case, building a business with the environment in mind. I just love that. Hope you did as well. Odds are you already follow Joey on LinkedIn, Twitter, his writing in the New York Times and elsewhere, and you probably own a pair of his shoes. But in case not, check him out and his shoes. All birds are literally the most comfortable shoes on the planet. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at, you guessed it, bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, subscribe right and comment on the show at Apple Podcasts. Hit that subscribe button on YouTube and on Spotify for your Android users. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. You can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. I appreciate our team who works very hard week in and week out on this podcast. Our liaison directors for each sported cow who co-host the shows, our production team behind today's episode, audio and video engineering, graphics, and so forth, along with my inspiring co-host, Robert Paler, whose personal story and motivational content you can learn more about at robertpaler.com. I appreciate you all. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal and you haven't yet connected with us on LinkedIn, join us. Send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal Varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens in the world, just like Joey. I'll see you in two weeks on our next amazing episode. We have so many good conversations in the tank, ready to show. I can't wait to share them with you. Go Bears. Go Bears.